This is the story of a woman who was as remarkable in her way as her brothers, Wilbur and Orville Wright, were in theirs. Her name was Catherine Wright, but don't be surprised if it doesn't ring a bell. Until a few years ago, most biographers and historians treated her as a minor character in the Wright brothers' saga, the loyal, self-sacrificing sister who kept the home fires burning while the menfolk were out inventing the airplane. But dig a little deeper, and a very different picture emerges. The real Catherine Wright played second fiddle to no one. She embodied, in a very public and prominent way, the worldly, independent, and self-fulfilled new woman who turned traditional gender roles on their heads at the turn of the 20th century. I'm Harry Haskell, Catherine's step-grandson, and in this three-part podcast, we're shining a light on the extraordinary woman who has long stood in the shadow of the world-renowned Fathers of Powered Flight. Part 1. Introducing the Wright Sister. I've always lived with men, and I don't look on them as such a wonderful treat. But you know perfectly well how the world has always been managed by men to promote that very idea. Women have always had to get what they wanted by wheedling or scheming. It makes women so dependent on the opinion of men in a way that men wouldn't tolerate for one second if things were reversed. Are we always discussing what kind of men women like? Whether we like their smoking or this or that? No. But I am sick of hearing forever that women must do this or mustn't do that or the men won't like them. There isn't any sense in it, and it wouldn't be as it is except that the men do have the final control of most things because they handle the money. And if women want the things money can buy, and they do, they must please the men or fool the men into giving them what they want. It's a game that I despise. The middle-aged firebrand who launched that salvo in 1924 in a letter to her future husband, my grandfather, was a veteran of the gender wars. The word feminist was just entering the lexicon when Catherine reached adulthood, and I doubt she would have applied it to herself. Still, she had a lot in common with the first-wave feminists, women who struggled to balance the strictures of Victorian domesticity against the laxer mores of the modern era, and their own pent-up desire for what Virginia Woolf called a room of one's own. Catherine came of age in an exciting period when new ideas were being put forth, but a lot of really, really traditional ideas um, were still very deeply embedded. Cindy Wilkie is a historian of the women's movement in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. That notion of separate spheres, that you know there was an appropriate role for women and men, and the spheres simply did not cross. And if women stepped outside their sphere... That's literally language they would have used at the time. You know, that's outside your sphere. Women would have paid a price in a variety of ways for stepping outside that sphere. So women got very clever and tried to argue things like, well, we're not stepping outside our sphere. We're, we're continuing to nurture and take care, but we're just stretching our sphere. Notions known as like civic housekeeping or extended housekeeping that women argued was still within the confines of what society expected women to do. And Catherine's is a really good example of all of that. 
She very much cared for her family. She took great pleasure in caring for her family, but it also was not lost on her that it was expected of her to do that. Whereas like when Wilbur cared for the family, you know, people were concerned and upset, you know, this, this isn't right for a man to be doing these things, but making those types of sacrifices of self for a woman was not even to be commented upon, it was expected. And sometimes she resented things like that. Catherine's notion of what Cindy referred to as the woman's sphere was conditioned by her place in the right household. Family was the center of her universe. Everything, and I mean everything, revolved around it. The relationship she formed while growing up in Dayton, Ohio in the late 1800s, and the experiences she had in her formative years, remained the yardsticks by which she measured the world for the rest of her life. She sometimes chafed at her domestic obligations, grumbling that, The more you do for a family, the more they take, as a matter of course. But her devotion to her older brothers never wavered even after she accompanied Will and Orv on an expedition to Europe in 1909 and became an international celebrity in her own right. Over the years, the Wright sister was mostly forgotten, awaiting rediscovery by a generation more attuned to women's history. Andrea Fellows Feinberg, the librettist of a new opera about Catherine, almost literally stumbled across her several years ago on a trip to the Midwest from her home in New Mexico. I was in Dayton, Ohio, for a production of the Magic Flute, for which I'd written the um, dialogue. And among the things that people said to do while I was waiting for the, the opera to premiere was to go to the Woodland Cemetery and to the gravesites of Orville and Wilbur Wright. It's, it's a historic place. And came up the hill and looked down and saw Orville, Wilbur, and Catherine between them. I was with um, Kathleen Clausen, who was the stage director, and we looked at each other and said, who's Catherine Wright? And from that point, the more I knew about her, the more I wanted to know, and the more I wanted other people to know about her. Catherine first caught my eye when I was uh, examining photographs of the Wright brothers in Europe. Lois Walker is a retired historian with the U.S. Air Force. Her interest in Catherine was piqued while she was researching the history of Dayton's Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in the 1980s. And there she was, standing with the crown heads of Europe, the elite of European society, the only woman at the banquet given by the Royal Aeronautical Society in, in London, going up in the airplane herself with Wilbur on three different occasions. Uh, going up in a hot air balloon, going up in a dirigible, you know, things that few women would have imagined doing. So it, it, it occurred to me that, you know, her brothers were pretty thoroughly focused on their work. They were, were doing what they needed to do to give the, their flying demonstrations to, to the French, to the British, to the Germans. But Catherine was um, not only acting as their social secretary, but she was looking at the big picture. She was smart. She was very observant. Her brothers were busy making history. And meanwhile, she's watching the impact that these events have on the observers that are there. I'm sure she's imagining the effect that this is going to have on, on the rulers and the governments of those countries, uh, interactions between countries. These were very momentous happenings. And, and Catherine's just getting swept right along with all of it. 
So I, I ask myself, you know, who is this diminutive woman in these big hats and um, so much on her shoulders? For each of these modern-day women, the Wright sister has been a source of ongoing inspiration and curiosity. My own connection to Catherine's story has a personal aspect as well. She married my grandfather in 1926, not long after his first wife died. Along with my own impressions, this three-part podcast includes the voices of other scholars, historians, family members, and interpreters who offer their own illuminating perspectives on Catherine and her times. So let's start at the beginning. Who was Catherine Wright? Well, she was born in 1874, the youngest of five surviving Wright siblings. They grew up in a modest wood frame house on Dayton's west side, a bustling, densely packed neighborhood across the Miami River from downtown. The two eldest Wright brothers, Rushlin and Lauren, married while Catherine was in her teens and left her at home with Wilbur and Orville. Milton Wright, the patriarch of the clan, was an affectionate but domineering father, a bishop in the Church of the United Brethren who spent much of his time traveling on church business. When his beloved wife Susan died in 1889, after a long bout with tuberculosis, Catherine was thrust into the hugely demanding role of mother, sister, and surrogate spouse, all rolled into one spunky 15-year-old package. I believe the family was everything to Catherine, and I think she was the heartbeat of the family. My name is Amanda Wright Lane, and I am a great-grandniece of Orville, Wilbur, and Catherine Wright. Growing up with four older brothers, Catherine was the spark. She loved having family around her. She loved preparing for family occasions. And um, she always was interested in having the nieces and nephews around. She and her brothers would play some pranks on those children. And I know she so felt the loss when her mother died. And I think it made the whole family really pull together and care about each other and take on tasks and work together to hold the family together to make both their mother and father proud of them during this time. I know that for a while, Uncle Will, he was in the middle of these five siblings, and there were days when he would go run off with his two older brothers, and there were days when he was, was with the younger two, with Orville and Catherine. And I think through Susan's illness, this solidified their relationships even more. And I remember that her older brothers were a bit worried about her. And I think the bishop particularly was concerned about her as the youngest and a young woman in the family. And he was very adamant about her going to Oberlin to go to university, go to college. And I think for, that was for a couple of reasons, to allow her to broaden her horizons, which was something he was um, always, he always set, talked about with many of the nieces and nephews, you know, as well as his own children. But I think he was concerned, would she be able to have, you know, some sort of livelihood when he passed on? How would she care for herself if, if her brothers were all off on their own adventures? Bishop Wright was a firm believer in higher education for women, and Oberlin's distinction as the first co-educational college in the country undoubtedly appealed to him. 
but I suspect there was another reason he chose it for his only daughter. In the late 1800s, the small rural college in northern Ohio was an important center of religious revivalism and the Protestant missionary movement. Catherine took the required courses on theology, moral philosophy, and so on, but her favorite subject was classics, Latin and Greek literature. The Oberlin connection caught the eye of composer Laura Kaminsky when Andrea Fellows Feinberg proposed that they collaborate on an opera about the Wright sister. I had never heard of Catherine Wright and received a message from Andrea saying, I may have an opera project and I might think you would be interested in this and it would be for Dayton, Ohio and it would be about the relatively unknown to the world sister of Orville and Wilbur Wright. And I thought, wow, I mean, I grew up, as did most kids, you go to school, it's a piece of your American history and science history, never heard of her. And Andrea started to tell me about her discovery at the cemetery and what she had already begun researching. And when I learned that Catherine Wright was an Oberlin alumni, that was exciting to me because I also went to Oberlin and one of the things I was most proud of Oberlin's legacy was that it was the first college to admit black and white students together and the first college to be co-ed together. And so it had this sort of progressive utopian vision of the way the world could be. So I said, of course she went there. Later in life, Catherine would put her Oberlin education to work on behalf of numerous progressive causes and civic projects. As the only member of her high-achieving family to earn a college degree, she prized her intellectual independence, the same independence that enabled Wilbur and Orville, who were largely self-taught, to question the received scientific wisdom of the day. The three siblings' free-thinking ways spilled over into the religious sphere. While Catherine's exacting code of morals and ethics faithfully mirrored her fundamentalist upbringing, she was deeply disillusioned by the First World War, a war that she had actively advocated for the United States to enter. Ultimately, she came to see the bishop's old-time religion as little more than brainwashing. I think many of the religious ideas are like many of the ideas that were manufactured and put out in such a convincing way to get the young men to go to the war willingly. A very little time has shown how untrue those ideas were. No one is really grateful to the boys who went. Everyone who could made money any old way, but no one who stayed at home has a grateful thought for those who went and created the demand for the things out of which money was made. No one has any thought of doing anything for those who suffered by going. But at the time, it was a good way to get what was needed. It eased the feelings of all concerned. So I think many of the ideas of religion are just for that purpose. They persist because human feelings seem to remain a good deal the same. The same need for a feeling of confidence in the world. The same need to believe that if things aren't fair for those few years of life, they will be made so for eternity. 
The same need to feel that dear ones will never really go out of existence, away from us forever. And so it has been easy to believe that those things are all taken care of in the scheme of the universe. Catherine's sense of independence and fair play wasn't just a matter of faith. It was instilled in her from the cradle. By giving her an Oberlin education, Milton Wright ensured that she could support herself as a teacher, one of the few professions open to women in the early 1900s. Later, he deeded the family house over to her, so she never need worry about having a roof over her head. At the same time, the bishop brooded over his daughter like a mother hen, constantly nagging her about keeping up appearances and behaving with womanly decorum. It wasn't until she graduated from college in 1898 that Catherine got her first taste of financial independence as a teacher of high school Latin and history. That job also gave her a taste of inequality in the workplace. As a woman, she earned less than the male teachers at Dayton Steel High School and was expected to run herd over more than her fair share of rowdy, inattentive teenagers. For all that, she insisted that teaching gave her a greater sense of satisfaction than anything else she ever did. I asked classicist Judith Peller Hallett, who's made a special study of women in her field, what might have attracted someone of Catherine's background and temperament to Latin literature and the ancient world. We mustn't forget that anyone who was seeking higher education, that is college preparatory education, particularly with an eye to entering the learned professions, the clergy, law, medicine, teaching, needed to take Latin in secondary school. When she got to Oberlin, this is a very strong, distinguished department, well-known for influential teaching. I'm sure the kind of teaching she experienced there played a big role in her deciding to continue and to become a Latin as well as a history teacher. She must have you know, done work in, in, in both areas. And it should be emphasized that Oberlin had been, it was the first co-ed college in the country, and it was the first to admit blacks. And some of its most distinguished black graduates had studied classics there too. Uh, and she would have known all about them. She might have met them. So I think it was kind of an intoxicating, I hate to use this Dionysiac word, atmosphere for studying classics at Oberlin. And she was very well prepared for the challenges she faced, I, I would argue. But for the most part, the women who trained and worked as Latin teachers did not marry. This was a profession in which a single woman could support herself handsomely. Uh, the joke is, of course, that she flunked Dayton's future leaders. And the point is that anyone in Dayton who wanted to have a future as a leader, male or female, was in a Latin class, at least for a few years. And she would have taught perhaps more boys than girls. And she was probably extremely well equipped because of her family situation, and that she'd gone to this same, well, she'd gone to a different, but she'd the same kind of public co-educational high school herself, and that she'd gone to co-educational Oberlin. I think this admirably equipped her for handling interpersonal dynamics of the classroom. If Catherine's professional career opened new horizons, 
Her domestic life reinforced the time-honored, family-centered values that Oberlin had ingrained in her. At the same time, college life offered Catherine a sense of community and common purpose beyond the family. The novelty of living in all-female boarding houses kindled a lifelong commitment to women's rights and education that culminated in 1923, when she was elected to Oberlin's Board of Trustees, only the second woman to hold that position in the college's 90-year history. So she ended up playing a decisive role in the history of higher education in America in ways that um, she might not have if she had gotten her PhD and gone out to teach at Vassar. But the graduates of Oberlin had such an impact not only on that part of, of the U.S. at that time, but you know, the world. I mean, Oberlin graduates are just an extraordinary uh, group of people. And she was there making decisions that helped form it. Catherine earned a reputation as an outspoken gadfly who relished butting heads with Oberlin's male establishment. Equal pay for women faculty was high on her agenda, but she had no qualms about taking up the cudgels on behalf of men. Shortly after taking her seat on the board, she had a run-in with the college's formidable president, Henry C. King. He had made the mistake of expecting the trustees to rubber stamp his decision to accept the resignation of an eminent physics professor. An indignant Catherine gave him a piece of her mind, as she reported with gusto in a letter to my grandfather. I object to being on the board just to okay what the administration does. I replied to President King that I thought it was a calamity to lose Professor Williams and that I had heard no different opinion from anyone. If it was too late to keep Williams, it seemed to me that the physics department was in great need of improvement. And I thought that we ought to do something there right away if we were hoping to attract and keep the kind of boys we were always making so much effort to get. Of course, that's a sore point with me. The talk is always about the conditions for the boys. I also said, gratuitously, that Professor Williams was the kind we couldn't afford to lose when men of his caliber were so scarce, and that it gave me great concern because I had given a good deal of thought to the question of the general tone of our faculty. He can put that in his pipe and smoke it. But the nerve of telling us that it was too late now to do anything about Williams leaving and then asking us for suggestions. Well, he got one from me. Another front in Catherine's campaign to put the sexes on an equal footing was the fight to win women the vote. Ohio, at the turn of the 20th century, was a hotbed of suffragist activism. The movement crested in a 1914 suffrage parade through downtown Dayton, in which Catherine's 85-year-old father and her brother Orville marched side by side. Wilbur undoubtedly would have shown up too if he hadn't died tragically two years earlier. A few days before the parade, the Wrights hosted a suffrage fete, a kind of kickoff party, for some 1,200 supporters on the spacious grounds of their suburban mansion. Six years later, in 1920, ratification of the 19th Amendment finally gave women access to the ballot box in national as well as state and local elections. Sing it as we ought to sing it cheerily and strong, giving the ballot to the mothers. Hurrah, hurrah, we bring the jubilee. Hurrah, hurrah.
The suffrage movement in Ohio was shaped in part by the fact that Ohio was a very progressive state. And the wave of progressivism that was so large in the late 19th, early 20th century. And Ohio was a big part of that. This is Cindy Wilkie again. As an associate professor at the University of Virginia's college at Wise, she studied Catherine's role in the suffrage movement. Oberlin, of course, being the first uh, institution of higher education to admit women, very proud of that history, it is definitely a recurring theme in the early women's suffrage movement. Several of the big early leaders, Lucy Stone, also attended other progressive ideas. Of course, the Anti-Saloon League was born at Oberlin. The crossovers between the women's suffrage movement and the temperance movement were very deep, although of all the different organizations that Catherine was involved in, I'd never come across her going to a temperance meeting. But yes, indeed, first being at Oberlin, that history at Oberlin definitely would have been encouraging. Again, the mere fact that she was receiving a college education when it was increasingly common for women, and obviously the more educated a woman was, the more likely she was to want the right to vote. It's one of the things we see with the women's suffrage movement increasingly throughout the early 20th century is the number of college-level chapters and these, these young women out there willing to go on train tours and really push the envelope in ways that some of their older women were a little less willing and a little less able to do because of the demands of family. The other thing that definitely fueled Catherine and the women's suffrage movement was the club movement. In the late 19th, early 20th century, women's clubs were huge and all different types of clubs. In fact, in one of her letters, Catherine talks about the significance of the club movement and how it affected women. Again, back to that notion of separate spheres, really curtailing what women could and could not do. Clubs, though, were one area where it was perfectly acceptable for them to leave their home and spend time with other women. And in these clubs, women picked up a number of leadership skills, everything from being treasurer to running meetings to recruitment to advertising. And whether intentional or not, those clubs became a breeding ground for the women's suffrage movement as these women sort of got a taste and sort of came to understand that they were capable of doing these types of formal power, institutionalized power. Uh, many of them lend these skills to the women's suffrage movement. So it may have looked like it was a recipe exchange club, and indeed it was, but they do become a breeding ground. And Catherine was involved so her experience in that way would have been very typical for a woman of her time and her social class. But the women's suffrage movement itself, of course, was still fighting those Victorian notions of separate spheres and what is an appropriate place for women and what is not. And the rights are actually a really fascinating example of individuals who kind of had one foot in the 19th century and one foot in the growing 20th century. Catherine herself, you can frequently see that, and certainly her father, very, very much oddly progressive in some ways, but literally in the next breath, very, very traditional. 
you know, like was fine with Catherine being educated, but then she needed to be a teacher. That would be in keeping with just those notions of separate spheres that the suffrage movement itself had to battle against. Catherine's staunch advocacy of women's rights didn't blind her to what she saw as the foibles and follies of her sex. She referred to women in the old-fashioned way as her sect, almost as if womanhood were a religious denomination. As far as she was concerned, though, it was self-evident that men called the shots. I get all head up over living forever in a man's world, with so much discussion about what kind of women men like, and so little concern over what kind of men women like, that it's a good deal like the particular subject of woman suffrage used to be with me. <laughs> Orv always teased me about that. When we were working for it, he used to say that woman's suffrage was like Rome in one respect. All roads led to it with me. No matter, however, where the conversation started, I always managed to switch it off onto the woman's suffrage track. It wasn't quite as bad as that, but I was very much in earnest about it, to put it mildly. No one takes a woman's work seriously unless she is extraordinary. No wonder few women do serious work unless there is some special gift or great need of some sort. When women don't do anything but give orders to servants and dress and fill up their time with nothing, of course they are not very interesting. And when women are so occupied with taking care of houses and children that they can't think of anything else and never get out among other people, of course they are not interesting. I don't know what can be done, but I know that already, having the vote has done a lot toward making men take us seriously. Catherine's attitude toward what she called a woman's work changed dramatically after she gave up her teaching job and devoted all her time to the family, as we'll hear in part two of this podcast. Outwardly, she embraced the traditional female roles of caregiver and social secretary as her lot in life. Privately, however, she grew increasingly restless, resentful, and determined to emancipate herself. As the genteel Victorian cult of family morphed into the anything-goes individualism of the Roaring Twenties, the Wright sister was tugged in opposite directions, a thoroughly modern Millie who clung to the middle-class values of her youth. Catherine had a long list of pet peeves, the shallowness and vulgarity of post-war culture, Americans' insatiable craving to be entertained rather than educated, the faddish unconventionality of jazz-age rebels, whom she mocked as parlor radicals. But waging a moral crusade wasn't in her nature. Live and let live was her philosophy, on one condition, that she had the freedom to be herself. Well, if we are the kind of creatures that modern thought assumes we all are, because some of the modern thoughters are, all I've got to say is, I think the old way of pretending we aren't what we are is better than the new way of having no shame about being as we are. I don't know where we are or what the truth is in the controversy. I only know that. 
Far from getting any sense or loveliness out of the new ideas, the world is getting ideas much uglier than the ugly things we see when there is no sense of beauty for things. I can't understand it. There is no use to talk. One might as well try to sweep back the Atlantic with a broom. But I grow more determined every day to live my own life and do as I please. It need not disturb anyone else. I don't want to force my ideas on anyone else. I may be wrong, you know. To live my own life and do as I please. Catherine shared that revolutionary credo with countless women of her day, from liberated flappers to pioneering social reformers like Jane Addams and Margaret Sanger, and independent-minded writers and artists like Virginia Woolf and Georgia O'Keeffe. But does Catherine still have something to say to women in the 21st century? Judging from the burgeoning interest in her story, the answer is a resounding yes. The rediscovery of the Wright sister has taken many forms, scholarly books and articles, novels, films, blog posts, school papers, and now an opera titled, appropriately enough, finding right. So it seems natural to ask if Catherine can serve as a role model for women today. I put that question to composer Laura Kaminsky and librettist Andrea Fellows-Feinberg. Here's Laura. She was such an engaged citizen, and I think that that is something that the youth today, at this juncture in our cultural, social, political history that we're living through is very relevant that people in their 20s look at the world and they're they're not just thinking about their personal little lives anymore they're thinking about being a, a committed engaged citizen and you know the terms that we use now are social justice I think Catherine thought about making the world a better place I think that her being a trustee at her college was a position of power that was leading policy that was about education and equality and engagement for the students to go out and make the world a better. I mean, a college that has a motto, learning and labor, I mean, she completely embraced that. And being a woman didn't stop her. And of course, she lived through the flapper age, but she was certainly not a flapper and a party girl although she may have had a good time, but I think what was so important was how convicted she was about doing good in the world. Surely anything is possible if you can spin sugar into air. Well, for me, um, this is Andrea. Activism takes many forms, and I think people have in their minds that there's the, only the one form, which is peaceful protest, um, being out in, the, in, the, in the, the public eye, and the other form is um, advocacy and allyship, and I think that's what she did exceptionally well. It's not as if she accepted things. She wrote about them. She spoke up whatever speaking up about them was, when things could be different, when there was another way to look at something. And she was very good at steering people to another way of looking at something. She was a life force. What can I tell you? 
If she was in the first wave of feminism in the 60s through late 70s, she might not have been one of the women who burned their bras, but she might have been working in some kinds of you know, social action groups that would be advocating for equal pay. If she were alive today, of all the many issues that we're confronting that feminists of today are, are, are dealing with, that she would have the one or two that resonated for her, and she would do what she could within the way that she operates. Like, then it was letter writing, now she would have an Instagram post or whatever she would do, but that she would be herself. I mean, I, I, there's always this conversation about why should we look at the past because it's irrelevant, it's not today, those people were, they're dead, they're not part of our contemporary culture, why, why should we learn their work or read it or listen to it? And I always go, we live in the time that we live in, but these issues are the same issues. I mean, we're always, as human beings, going to be struggling to make some version of a better world, or there's always going to be some kind of technological advance or breakthrough that's going to change how we do our daily life that brings up issues that gets pushed against and needs to be addressed. So given how she lived her life then, as the sister of the Wright brothers, I don't know whether she would be an environmental activist today and concerned about, oh my God, the carbon footprint. And, you know, like, my guess is she would be taking her story and her truths and looking at the world in which she's now living, and she would grab the issues that just spoke to her. As a member of Catherine's extended family, and the author of a novel called Maiden Flight, about her marriage to my grandfather, I often find myself wondering what she would think and do if she were alive today. Where would she stand on hot-button issues like the Me Too movement, the Equal Rights Amendment, the glass ceiling, abortion rights, and wages for housework? Would she identify with the modern feminist movement? Or would she feel more in step with women who support gender equality but criticize today's feminist agenda as reductive and divisive? Those questions are well worth asking, but at the end of the day, they seem less important to me than the universality of Catherine's story. Like other women of many different eras, cultures, and social backgrounds, she struggled to reconcile the competing roles and expectations that society imposed upon her. She was torn between devotion to family and home and the siren call of the rapidly modernizing world, a world that her pioneering brothers helped bring about. To learn more about the podcast and Catherine's story, as well as to see pictures of her and her family and images of her letters to my grandfather, go to harryhaskell.com. There you can also find the show on iTunes and other outlets to subscribe to the podcast. Please take a minute to rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen. Reviews go a long way in getting more exposure for the show. In Her Own Right was produced by George Drake, Jr. and made possible by generous grants from Dayton Aviation Heritage National Historical Park, Sue and Lester Rheingold, and Susan Marsh and Richard Moray. Special thanks to 91.3 WYSO in Yellow Springs, Ohio, our voice actor, Christine Brunner, and guest commentators Cindy Wilkie, Andrea Fellows-Feinberg, Lois Walker, Amanda Wright-Lane, Laura Kaminsky, 
and Judith Peller Hallett. I'm Harry Haskell. Thanks for listening to In Her Own Right. In part two of In Her Own Right, we'll explore Catherine's intense and complicated relationship with her brothers Orville and Wilbur. You could ask, well, if Catherine had gotten married and gone off and lived somewhere else, would the airplane ever have been invented? Maybe not. Maybe the brothers would have gotten stuck in somewhere. Maybe they, when they needed encouragement, they wouldn't have got it. Nobody would expect Orv to stay at home and take care of me if I were ill. But nobody would excuse me if I did not take care of him. Everything is greased to prevent a woman from doing any serious work. She was a lot of different things. I think she was, at least she has been described in letters by her family members as being fun and gregarious and talkative. And, but she was tough, too. 